The God who dignifies slave was himself a slave. The real shocker is not that slavery and injustice exists. The real shocker is that the one who shows slaves how to receive righteousness was himself a slave. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Manahawkin Baptist Church. In days like ours, where issues of racism are so rampant, it is important for Christians to turn to Christ to find how to walk in this world. Please turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, for a message entitled, Radical Slaves. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a controversial passage. This is among the many passages that Christians across the the world wish wasn't in the Bible. This is one of those passages that is confusing. Why didn't Peter just outright denounce slavery? Why didn't he tell masters to set their slaves free? Why not tell the slaves instead of be subject to your masters, why not tell them to run? Get out of your terrible situation. Are you telling me the Bible promotes slavery? Let's put it out right now. No, the Bible does not promote slavery. That is not what this passage is doing. Some read this passage as proof that the Bible not only promotes slavery, but also dehumanizes people. Some read this and understand the Bible to promoting degrading social structure built on oppression and injustice, And some read read this and believe that the Bible ignores justice. Why would you tell someone who's suffering in a dehumanizing social system to endure and to be subject? And then there's the other parts of the history of the interpretation of this passage. You and I both know that this is one of the passages that slave owners throughout history have read to their slaves to make them submit. Don't you want to obey God? God says for you to do this. What in the world is Peter doing? I hate that people have used this passage to abuse others. And I am firmly convinced that it is saying the exact opposite of what the abuse tries to say. When people use this passage and others like it to say that God promotes injustice, they are wrong. Authoritatively, they are wrong. This passage is the exact opposite of dehumanizing, the exact opposite of something that takes someone in the worst social structure and says to them, just, just, just take it. 
There's something so much bigger going on. And it's sad to me that this, this passage, which should be a blanket to warm the broken, has instead been used to smother people. And Christians, I would encourage you never to ignore this. When you are dealing with people who are skeptical about Christianity and they bring up passages like this and especially historical abuses of passage, don't just act like it's not there. You discredit your faith if you do that. Instead, we have to be people who do the right thing and say, that's not what it was saying. And just because others abused it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ upholds and confirms abusive structures. These are words of life and hope. Absolutely. Peter is being radical. He is being subversive. He is being countercultural. He is taking the social standards of the day and he is flipping them on their head. He may not use language that we necessarily immediately understand. This is good news. Never be afraid to read a passage of the scripture. Even if you don't necessarily know how it, what it means, don't be afraid. The Lord God of glory, when he speaks into our situation, he subverts the evil around it. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, is anything but bigotry and a moral dehumanization. But the honest question we have to ask is how? How is that possible? Didn't he just like talk to slaves and tell them not to run? Well, let's ask Peter. I wanna teach you a little trick a skill that we need to learn. Anytime we come to a passage that we don't understand, especially one that is seemingly promoting the exact opposite of what we think it probably should be saying, we should ask this question. Where is the radical idea? Ask it anytime you come to a passage like this. What is he saying? Ask the question anytime you come to a passage that causes you to stumble and fall, and the, especially ones that say that your, your non-Christian friends or your skeptical friends might say, well, this is proof that God is, your God's a bigot. Ask the question, where is the radical idea? Because what you're basically asking when you ask this question is, what is Peter saying? You're not, your job as a Christian is not to make something palatable. Your job is to help people see the righteous truth that Peter is trying to say. What is the radical idea? So let's read. Now when, we're, when you ask yourself what's the radical idea, you should first, one of the things you should clue into is what comes out of left field? What doesn't make sense? What, do I, what, what about this passage can I not, not explain? So let's read and let's immediately find out the part that stumps us all, the part that throws us off. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, but to the gentle and the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God that one endures sorrow while suffering. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So far, so good. He's admitting to the fact that there are slaves in his church, the churches that are reading this. He's giving them instruction on how to do good, and how to endure when they've been treated badly, despite doing good. Here comes the part that is terribly difficult. For to this you have been called, for Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Where's the radical idea? What in this passage is basically an intrusion, something that doesn't make sense? Jesus is the intrusion. This is the radical idea. The God who dignifies slaves was himself a slave. The God who dignifies slave was himself a slave. The real shocker is not that slavery and injustice exist. The real shocker is that the one who shows slaves how to receive righteousness, how to be healed, and how to do good in the midst of profound injustice was himself a slave. That comes way out of left field. It's not so surprising to us that he might address someone in a bad situation. What is surprising to us is that he puts a one-for-one parallel between Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the God of glory, and slaves. The God who dignifies slaves was himself a slave. Let's read 22 through 25 again. Look at it from the perspective not that Jesus is suffering, but that Jesus was himself a slave. For to this, verse 21 actually, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not, okay, so this is a transition in the passage. Not only is he a slave that has suffered unjustly, but now he's being a slave, he's being executed for doing good. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter has aligned the lowest member of society in the worst possible situation, people who had absolutely no rights, with Jesus Christ. And he's saying there's a one-to-one parallel here. Just as they suffer, so also Jesus suffered. Just as they experience injustice, so also Jesus experienced injustice. What, so what happened to Jesus? He was innocent. He suffered innocently. And despite being innocent, he received on himself the punishment that we were supposed to receive. And if you even take the passage further, Jesus showed himself to be enslaved, not just to the idea of slavery. He showed himself to be enslaved to us. We were the ones who gave him our punishment. We were the ones who threw him onto a cross. He became willfully a slave to us to set us, slaves of sin and slaves of systems, free. By suffering, he, quote, bore our sins on his body. By suffering, he made us die to sin. By suffering, he made us live to righteousness. By suffering, we have been healed. By suffering, he brought us back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Through suffering, Jesus was vindicated, but through his suffering, God accomplished a far greater redemption than anyone could have expected. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. There's a lot more going on in this passage than just that he takes a one-for-one correspondence. We know Jesus Christ to be the Messiah not just because he died and rose from the dead, but also because the scriptures proclaim who he was. There were certain markers of the prophets set forward well before Jesus was born for us to know him for who he was. This is God's sovereignty at work. He said, look for this kind of person. And so when that kind of person came, people could see him. Isaiah 53 shows us 
that Jesus is not just the Savior, the King, Israel's Messiah. He shows us what kind of Messiah he would be. He was the suffering slave. Isaiah 53, verses one through 12, we're gonna read the whole chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they have made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in the death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If you read our passage in chapter two, Peter has taken almost every major phrase and composited into this passage. He's saying Jesus Christ is not just the savior who came and died and made you better. He takes the readers all the way down to the depths where the nails pierced the skin, takes them all the way down to where the blood was flowing on the ground, and he says, this person, this suffering servant, this one is the one who identifies with you. Where's the radical thought? The God who dignifies slaves was himself a slave. The God who would dignify servants was himself a servant. The God who dignifies those who are being treated unjustly was himself treated unjustly. The Bible predicts Jesus in so many surprising ways. But this is the most surprising part. That the Messiah, the one who would come, would be broken first. And by that we would all be made alive. Jesus understands, is what he's telling them. He understands. Because he suffered, he's also able to help those who are suffering. Who better reaches out to you when you are having a hard time? The person who likes to imagine that they understand? Or the person who actually understands because they've been where you are? Have you lost somebody once, someone close, and then somebody comes up to you and says, oh, it's for the better, Who would say that if they'd actually been through it? Jesus, having suffered like the slaves have suffered, can also help 
suffering slaves as they suffer. There's a completely different type of love here. There's a kind of love that is able to not just say from the outside, hey, your situation will be better. This is the kind of love where the Savior enters into the room where the slave is, holds the arms up and says, you've done good, I will support you, I will give you grace, I will empower you. It's the kind of love that breaks into a situation where the suffering is occurring and says, I am your God and I will see you through it. The God who dignifies slaves was himself a slave and because he was a slave, he can carry the slave no matter what their plight is. He can show them how to live righteously even as they're suffering because he was in that situation. He knows how to get people through it. Think about the difference in Christianity and most other religions. You have gods who preach down at their people and then you have Jesus Christ who gets right in the mess and pulls people out. That's redemption. That's what heaven is all about. When we look forward to the second coming of Christ, well, how great will it be to not only see the dead come back to life, but also to find that chains throughout the entire world fall to the ground. But perhaps you're skeptical like I was. I had gotten to this point in this research, and I was like, yeah, but still, that's not helpful advice. Just telling them someone understands is kind of helpful. Well, let's ask someone who's been through this. WWJS, what would Joseph say? You remember Joseph? You remember Joseph? Technicolor Dreamcoat dude. If you think about that story, that is singularly one of the worst stories in the Bible. If you take God out of the equation, his brothers, in a feud with him, plotted to have him murdered. You never want to find out that you're, you showed up to a party and everyone wanted you killed. But just when you showed up, they changed their mind. Instead, they sell their brother. They sold their human precious brother to be a common household slave. And they weren't even selling him to owners. They were selling him to slave traders. So it very well could have been that he ends up being pushed over to salt mines. It could have been that he becomes someone's house slave. He could have been a sex slave. It could have been anything. And then when he's a slave, he finds himself in a decent situation and the master's wife accuses him of rape. So not only is he a slave in a country that's not his own, having been sold by his own family, now he's thrown into prison. How much lower could you go at this point? What's his hope at this point? His hope might be that someone will try to kill him, or maybe he'll die a slow death, or maybe he'll be executed. That's his hope. There's Joseph. There's his story. If you take God out of the picture, and it's an awful story, but God is the main character in the story. And we forget this too. God is the main character in the slave story of 1 Peter chapter 2. God is the main character in your story as well. The main character in Joseph's story is not Joseph. It's the God of Joseph. And so we see in Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Later in the chapter, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. This is after he was accused of rape. To the world, the king's prisoners were confined, and there, he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then, when he stands in front of Pharaoh so many times, so many years later, Pharaoh says, where else will we find someone that has the voice of God? 
And when Joseph stands before his brothers, uh, the brothers who sold him into slavery, he says, God sent me here before you to preserve life, a remnant over the earth, to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. If Joseph were to read this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, he would say, yes. God shows steadfast love to his people. He does not let them go, no matter how bad it is. The God who dignifies slaves was himself a slave. Thinking about Joseph, thinking about people in real situations, wondering, why am I suffering for injustice? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. That phrase, mindful of God, is basically walking with God, in the presence of God, honoring God, like we just sang. This is, you are walking with God, my friend. You're doing good for God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is to your credit. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body in a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you, he's speaking to slaves now, you, You who have a gash in your back because you were beaten senseless for doing good. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Your shepherd's not gonna let you go. You think you're just being beaten and no one notices. God sees, God holds you, God sustains you, and God will lead you into green pastures for his name's sake. He will because he is your shepherd. But not all stories are like Joseph's story. Not all stories have someone go from the lowest to the greatest. The stories might not be the same, but our God is the same. And this is a very key thing for modern Christians as ourselves. We can preach the gospel into situations that do not get better. There are situations in this world that will not get better. We can work to do justice, to bring righteousness, to change the situation and to advocate good, but there is still injustice that we know will not get better. There are people, even in this area, who are in situations that we might not be able to help them out of. But if they have the same God as Joseph, they will get out. Not because we did the work, but because God is faithful to them. What if someone doesn't experience miracles in this life on the level that Joseph experienced them? Then we call them to trust Joseph's God further because God shows steadfast love to his people and he will not let them go because the story isn't about them. The story is about God and God at the end of the day will not have his reputation tarnished. Not one of his sheep will be lost. Not one. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. No matter how bad the situation gets. And this is one of the reasons I love Christianity. 
What other religion in the world can walk square in to the worst possible situation, their message not be nullified just because the situation's bad? When you go to someone who's in the grossest situation and you don't even know if you can get them out, you can still declare on firm authority that their Savior will save their souls. Think about how incredible that is. The Savior of all people will actually save anyone in any situation. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. And I don't know if you knew this, but in New Jersey alone last year, there were 169 people who could have read this passage and it would have immediately applied to their situation. There were 169 discovered cases of human slavery and trafficking in New Jersey. We think, well, we're on the other side of all that. No, we're not. Right now in the United States, there are 1.5 million slaves. 1.5 million slaves in America who would read this passage and actually see that God is still good. And then across the world, there are 20.9 million slaves. This is why Christianity is so good. Because 20.9 million people are not outside of God's reaching care. We could stand in front of all 20.9 million and say, your shepherd loves you. And he'll get you through this. And it would be just as true then as it is here. Christians must take up the call of William Wilberforce and his community to bring justice to those people. And you can proclaim the love of Jesus Christ to those situations because you have a God who brings slaveries, slaves out. That there are 20.9 million people in the world who would read this passage and finally see, oh, someone who suffers like me. Someone who suffers, but because he suffered, I can be free. I can be free. Unbelievable. That's how big the good news of Christianity is. The gospel does not lose its power even though we are speaking into horrific situations, even in the case of slavery. Christians, let us take up the courage of Christ and join people who are on the front lines of fighting global and domestic slavery to liberate those who are oppressed and to set captives free. We would encourage you to go to the International Justice Mission website at ijm.org to find out more about how you can be on the front lines. And may God give us grace to that end as we seek to glorify him with our lives. May God bless you. Have an amazing week. (laughs) 